Hello, I'm Jackie Shea. Welcome to Too Sick and Naked Healing Out Loud, where we vulnerably discuss the ups and downs of healing from illness. Each episode, I interview a brave guest with extensive experience around illness and wellness, and hopefully we will leave you feeling inspired to warrior on, as well as highly informed about something new. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jessica Graham, spiritual teacher, sex and intimacy guide, filmmaker, and author of the new book, Good Sex, Getting Off Without Checking Out. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Jackie. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. You, um, I just think you're amazing. And <laughs> well, I think you're pretty amazing, too. I had the pleasure of reading your new book, and it is incredible. Like, like I said to you, I can't wait to see it fly off of shelves, and I can't wait for people to get off without checking out, <laughs> including myself. <laughs> um, but something you talk about in the book that I love so much is that you're really passionate about healing trauma. Yes, absolutely. I, I think that most of us uh, don't get out of childhood without some level of trauma. And if it doesn't get us in childhood, then it gets us in our teenage years. And if for some crazy reason we don't have any trauma in our teenage years, it's going to get us at some point. Um, because being human is kind of traumatic. Mm. Um, and the the sad truth is, is that many, many, many people have sexual trauma. And um, on all different levels. And the thing is, is that it's relative. You, you can have like the worst, most horrific story, or you can just have someone that looked at, at you in a way that made you uncomfortable when you're a kid. And either way, it can start to shape the way that you interact with yourself, with your sexuality, with your partners. Yeah, of course. And I can't wait to talk to you about healing sexual trauma, which is such a, such a great topic. But I, I want to talk about that childhood trauma that you do mention in your book, you have some of, certainly, I certainly have some of, and um, it's interesting because when I got sick, uh, I felt like I wasn't going to get well unless I healed my trauma, and um, although I didn't think about that sexually, which is interesting and I will want to talk to you about later, but for now, you know, we talked a little bit about ACE scores. Um, there was an ACE study done at Kaiser over four years in the 90s, and it's uh, it stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And the study was to prove or to see if adverse childhood experience could affect your well-being as an adult. Um, and they came out very clearly that yes, uh, with a score of four or higher, you are twice as likely to smoke, be an alcoholic, and have sex before you're 15, which I was like, check, check, check. Um, <laughs> you're two times as likely to get heart disease and four times as likely to have chronic bronchitis. Talks a lot about lung issues and immune system issues, both of which are big deals for me. Lots of pneumonia, <laughs> really low immune system. Talks about having a high uh, C-reactive protein, which is something, interestingly enough, they use to test for Lyme. I've always had a high C-reactive protein, and I consider myself, I actually have an ACE score of seven. <laughs> so they say that something about with seven or higher, yeah, your risk of heart disease is 360% higher. Yeah. So will you talk to us a little bit about your experience with the ACE score and and how that... Um, how that changed your life. I know that eventually this trauma got you into meditation. So, yeah, absolutely. So, um, I like to say that I was raised by beautiful and terrible wolves and, um, I was very much a little wolf child and, um, I was on my own really young. I was on my own at 14 pretty much. Um, 
And so a lot of surviving going on. Um, And, you know, I grew up in mental illness and alcoholism and drug addiction and long lines of trauma um, and addiction and mental health issues on both sides of my family. And, um, you know, another thing that gets gets discussed when we talk about um, health issues and addiction issues and anxiety, depression is epigenetics and how um, trauma can actually be passed down um, in our DNA. And it used to just be sort of this this idea of that that I would talk about, like, yeah, we got to heal our ancestral line, but it's actually true. It's scientifically true. Um, And so not only did I have my parents who were doing the best they could, but very often um, wasn't all that great, um, but I had their parents and their parents' parents and their parents' parents, and that all resulted um, in, you know, where I find myself today, and I'm very grateful where I find myself today. my parents did offer me a lot of um, a lot of tools just to be a free, um, independent, artistic, spiritual person. Um, but then there was the other side of it. And you know, speaking of pneumonia, I, I was in the hospital for a week with double pneumonia when I was a kid. I was it was just always having migraine issues as a child, and um, and throughout my life, I've dealt with various chronic illnesses and and chronic pain. And when I first learned about the ACE survey and I took it, um, I answered ten of ten, and. For some people, I, I could imagine it being like maybe depressing or scary. For me, it was really helpful and empowering um, because any part of me that felt that um, sort of my my various addictions or my illness issues, that they were my fault, I no longer felt that way. I was like, oh, okay. And it's not necessarily my parents' fault or their parents' parents' fault. Like, it's just, it's, it's this line um, of trauma and I'm doing my best to, to stop that line. Yeah, that's amazing. I definitely know for me that trauma has been passed down. And uh, there's that saying that I love, hurt people hurt people. Yeah. And um, that's 100% true for me. And I, I haven't gone into really exploring the ancestral healing deeply. I know that there are many um, different energy healing ways to do that and I haven't and I would love to but um you know for me too actually seeing my number and relating it to my illness was was I always knew that a big reason why I couldn't get well quickly or why it was so hard for my body was because of this trauma that was repressing my immune system and I did a lot of work around that but it was helpful for me to see like oh there's such obvious correlation um between also my addict, I also have a past with addiction and <laughs> with sexual misconduct and um, all sorts of things. So thank you so much for for sharing that with us. And you did mention in your book that some of this stuff did come out for you physically, just a little bit. Yeah, oh, migraines and yeah, in the hospital and yeah. I had I've I've had many many health issues over the years that can absolutely, in my opinion, and I think in the opinion of science at this point. Um, be related to to trauma both in my childhood and then in my teen years when I was basically on my own and just you know in lots of unsafe unsavory situations um, because I just didn't have anyone taking care of me um, so yeah I mean and, and even now like you know if I I spend 
a lot of time making sure that my life is calm and comfortable and stress-free because my body is wired to react to stress in a way that someone who didn't have my history would. Like I, you know, if, if I have a little too much stress, then there's a lot to contend with going on in my body. And so it's, it's good on one hand because it's turned me into this like, you know, meditation teacher, you know, I'm getting ready to go on a retreat for 35 days, a silent retreat. And like, you know, and there's all these like, and it's certainly, you know, my life and everything that's happened up until this moment has led up until this moment. And so there's not a sense of like, even wishing it was different, but I, I do have to, I do have to be very aware of what I put into my body, um, how I use my body, um, because it's wired to, it's kind of, my body's wired to hurt. Mm. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, I woke up a few days ago with this, um, crazy pain in my back. Like, I have lung problems, so I was actually really concerned that my lungs were filled with fluid. It hurt really bad to breathe. It was like all up my ribs and my front body. And every time I took a breath in, it um, was shooting pain. And so I uh, went on to explore the options and was kind of like, you know, doing my little detective mode thing. What could it be? What did I consume? What's going on? And I had this brilliant amazing sort of like magician masseuse come over that is like a masseuse and a chiropractor and all sorts of things and he was just like yeah you're so stressed Mm. (laughs) which is something masseuses say a lot but but he was like feeling the muscle in between my rib cage and he was like oh so your inhale and exhale muscles got like crossed and it's causing you all of this severe pain and they need to be separated (laughs) Wow. And I was like, and he did this magic on me and I felt so much better. And I was like, could that have really been stress? I mean, I know what stress does to my body and I have to be really careful as well. And actually reading your book did inspire me more so to up my meditation practice. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, yeah, our bodies react to stress. It's proven that stress uh, causes illness and you know, hormones are secreted and neurotransmitters are activated and inflammatory, they say like inflammatory proteins flood the bloodstream. And when that's happening a lot as a kid, it leads to these long lasting effects. And actually the DNA chemicals in the brain change. Yeah. You get, you get inflammation markers on the DNA. And then another thing that happens is the, the brain starts to prune as a teenager, the brain's supposed to prune certain things and it, it starts pruning things that's not supposed to. Mm. as a result of trauma this is this is all stuff I learned in um that book childhood disrupted they really get into all of it and it's it's fascinating but I had to take it in bite-sized pieces because it's um it's intense to read yeah I need to read that I read this New Yorker article article called um what was it called uh it was about this aces uh the ace um study I can't remember what it was called, but you can find it if you go to acestohigh.com, which is where you can take your your test, your quiz, and read more about the um, read more about the study. It will take you to this New Yorker article where they talk a lot about this doctor, Nadine Burke, who believes that these issues should not be left to sociologists or psych- or psychiatrists, or but should be left to the MDs that are um, doing this. She believes it's a medical issue. Not that psychologists and psychiatrists aren't medical, but you understand um, she thinks it's a 
molecular issue. So I, I love that. Yeah. Whenever I meet a doctor, I tell them about the ACE survey. Oh, really? <laughs> like any kind of doctor. I just tell them about it um, because so many of them don't know yet. Um, and I think it's, it's so incredibly important. I think, you know, I think as with anything, it's a holistic integrative, integrative approach, you know, um, coming what you want to come from all angles, um, to address this sort of stuff, but absolutely it's a medical issue. Um, and you know, I, for me, like a lot of the, a lot of the stuff related to trauma for me was, was actually handled with the meditation and some specific therapy modalities. And what I find is the trauma that resides is more on the cellular level. Yeah, let's talk about your med. I know all of this led you to a deep meditation practice, which has led you down this very beautiful road in life. And in your book, you talk about somatic experience therapy for trauma. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that to us a bit? Sure. So somatic experiencing, it was developed by someone named Peter Levine. And... It's just it's this wonderful therapy modality. If you're if you're doing it with someone who's really well trained, it can be incredibly life changing, and it, you can be um, certified in it without actually being a therapist. And there are some people I know here in LA as well as elsewhere that um, are therapists, and then some I know that are not that practice it. Um, and basically, the idea is that the body stores trauma and uh, it needs to be released. And so animals out in the wild. Let's say a little bunny's hopping along and a fox starts chasing it and the bunny gets away, the bunny will shake all over and release the trauma. But as humans, we don't do that. And in fact, even like after a car accident, we might be like held, they might, some, someone might hold us still and wrap us tight in a blanket or try to calm us down, but really the body needs to shake. Um, and this is, this is the sort of the theory that Peter Levine has around trauma. And um, that's where you see modalities like uh, TRE, which is another uh, uh, trauma sort of prevention and release method. Um, And so the idea is that we want to let the body move in the ways it couldn't during the trauma. And so sometimes there'll just be these subtle movements that happen or, or little jerks. Um, and as you discuss a traumatic event, your, your practitioner will bring you back to the body and, and do a few things. One, sort of explore what feelings are happening in the body. But two, do something called resourcing, which is where you um, take the attention to something that feels good or feels grounded or um, feels relaxed even. And then you let the, the, sh- the more challenging emotions process through while you're staying resourced in this more comfortable place in the body, finding safety in your own body. And then there's also titration, where you move back and forth between the area that feels okay and the area that's a little hotter. And um, I just find it incredibly useful. Even though I'm not certified in it, I'm very um, uh, inspired by it and influenced by it in the work I do with clients and students um, because it's just a really gentle but effective way of working through trauma. Have you done it yourself? Oh, yes. Yes, I've done a lot of it. Yeah. And, and it obviously really worked for you. Yeah, when I first started doing um, somatic experiencing, I was coming out of like eight months of basically being in a PTSD state almost every day. And it was very intense some of the days where, um, you know, the system thought it was dying. And so my arms and legs would go ice cold and even numb. 
all the blood going to the vital organs. And then the, um, the brain would just freeze, couldn't think. I would either get um, diarrhea or constipation. Um, I would get dizzy, I would get hot and cold. My heart would be pounding so fast, it would feel like I had just run like a thousand miles or something. And this could all be triggered by something very small. Um, and all my life, what I, when that would happen, I attributed to someone doing something that they shouldn't be doing to me. What I didn't realize is that it was all based on childhood trauma and the body really thought it was going to die. And so back when I drank and did drugs and stuff, I, I would uh, medicate that way. Um, but that's not, I don't do that anymore. So, so w this was probably about seven years ago when I was going through this and really uncovering some deep layers of trauma. Somatic experiencing is, I would say, is one of the top three things that brought me to the other side. And I never have reactions like that. That just doesn't happen anymore. It's amazing. Um, and you can find a practitioner that is that will take your insurance and everything, right? Like th there are therapists, I think, that do it. Yeah, there are. Okay. And and maybe uh, some of your folks have heard of EMDR. It's another kind of somatic therapy, um, and I think they work really well in conjunction. If you can find someone that does both or have practitioners in both, I love EMDR so much. That is something I definitely accredit to getting me through a lot of um, the trauma that was coming up for me when I was sick. But it's interesting that you mentioned the shaking, and I've actually heard you talk about that before. But um, when I was uh, crying every day, like unable to get out of bed, I had a sh shitload of trauma coming up and around me all the time when I was uh, really in the thick of illness. Something I started doing intuitively was getting on the floor and shaking my entire body from my head to my feet uh, to the point where like if somebody saw me, they would have, you know, carried me away and been like, she's crazy. But mm -hmm. it was the only way I felt in my body that I could release these things. And once I would shake for a while and I'd let myself go and go and go. Um, and sometimes it turned into like being up and violently shake, standing up and violently shaking or hitting things, uh, you know, soft things. <laughs> um <laughs> And uh, I would cry. It would release so much. I would cry and then I would rest. Um, and it all happened totally intuitively. And I was talking to one of our mutual friends about it. Later that night, I was like, you know, I've been doing this really weird thing where I've just been like, when I get really crazy and I feel really trapped inside my body, I, I described it as feeling like a wild animal trapped inside my body. So it's interesting. You talked about wild animals doing that too. And I told her, I was like, I get on the floor and I start violently shaking. <laughs> um, and she was like, really? That's so interesting. That's, that's, what, they, that's what you do for trauma. You know, you, you shake. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, she said it more eloquently than that. But, <laughs> uh, but she was essentially just like, well, that's amazing that you got there because that's, that's something that people use to heal people with a lot of trauma. And you get them moving and it comes out. It's so true. I was, <laughs> I was lucky because when I first started meditating seriously, because I was meditating when I was a little kid, but when I first started really seriously meditating daily, um, the first maybe two years of my practice, every time I sat down, I shook involuntary. Wow. And it would be like everything from a, a wrist sort of flicking to my whole body being thrown on the ground. Like sometimes it was like an exorcist thing. Um, it was intense. And if anyone ever saw it, because I learned to be able to keep it very quiet because it happened so often that I had to learn to work with it. 
Um, but if anyone ever saw it, like they would just have to come up to me after, like if I was at a retreat or something and they'd be like, that was amazing. What was going on? And like, and it, it happened every single time I meditated for, I think about two years and I just let it all unwind, you know? And that's part of what allowed the actual, the trauma to really surface in the way that it did was that I shook a bunch out. I think there were probably layers of just repression and resistance and denial that needed to be shook out before I could even get to some of the content. And you let yourself go. You let yourself have that experience. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are really afraid to have the experience and repress and repress and repress further. And for me, the reason I started to deal with it was just because, I mean, I didn't want to deal with it. I, I was all about distraction. You know, I lived my life like one distraction to the next, even after I had stopped drinking. It was like I was in trapeze class, then I was rollerblading down the pier, and then I was doing the rings, and before I knew it, 12 hours had gone by, and I was like, oh, I didn't spend one moment without my headphones in today kind of thing. Mm. Um, And when I got really sick and pretty much had no distraction, couldn't watch TV, couldn't read, couldn't walk, (laughs) Um, it made me it gave me two options to stay sick or to like do everything I needed to do to get well, which meant often looking like a total lunatic. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Um, Which I'm so grateful I did. Uh, So when you first started meditating, now you're obviously really advanced, but when you first started on this journey or what are some of the suggestions you have to brand new meditators? And I would, if you can, just because so many of my listeners are in the throes of illness, you know, especially for people that aren't capable of doing yeah. much. Yeah, so one of my uh, meditation teachers, Shenzhen Young, he really first became, first got on the map as a spiritual or meditation teacher um, working with people with chronic pain. And so a lot of the techniques that I originally started with are really perfect for those dealing with illness and pain. And I've certainly used them a lot and I've taught them a lot. So the basic premise is that pain times resistance equals suffering. And so number one, we have to offer whatever's happening acceptance, whether it's a a mental experience, an emotional experience, or a purely physical experience. Oftentimes with illness and chronic pain, it's, it's all three. So there's the physical pain, and then there's the emotional reaction to the physical pain, and then there's the also the mental reaction. And that becomes a big tangled up knot, and then it and then you get overwhelmed. And then um, it, it seems impossible. And then you're like, I can't live like this anymore. And if you learn to untangle the thoughts and emotions from the pain, then it's just pain, and it's not suffering. Um, suffering is made out of thoughts and emotions. And so one thing I can, I can just say is that it does work. Meditation does work for pretty much everything. That's not to say that we don't sometimes need other help, other support, other modalities. And it also doesn't mean that sometimes it's not fast enough. Like sometimes you just have to go and get put on an IV or whatever it is, right? Like it's, but you can be meditating while you do that, right? So, um, uh, for example, I, a number of years back was in the hospital and I was in a very intense amount of pain and, um, I knew that I could find something that didn't hurt. 
because I knew that everything in my whole body couldn't possibly hurt. And I did. I found my feet and I focused on my feet and the practice of untangling the thoughts and the emotions from the pain had become kind of a default for me because I practiced it every day really religiously for a long time. And so now if an intense experience arises in in any realm, pain or otherwise, I'm automatically deconstructing that experience into thoughts and emotions. And in doing so, uh, I don't have to suffer, no matter what's going on. And so that's a, a, a really big piece. It's like we, we, get, we get very attached to our identities, and whether that's an identity of someone that's sick or the identity of someone that's um, successful or the whatever. We get attached to these ideas of self. And in my philosophy and my experience, self is only made of thought and emotion. And it's completely impermanent. And it's actually quite empty. And when we see that, then we can start to choose to make meaning where we want to make it, rather than just being drug around by sort of a zombie. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Things did really change for me on my healing path when I realized that exact thing, that a big reason why I was suffering was because of the story I attached to the pain I was having. And I remember um, making a resolution uh, to, to just feel the pain and not attach a story and um, to see what would happen, essentially, to my energy levels if I did that. And I remember being at a Gypsy Kings concert <laughs> um, with my partner, and I had this uh, z- this crazy knee pain pop up. And usually for me with joint pain, the, my mind runs to joint pain, Lyme disease, death, like, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm never going to be okay, I'm never going to have X, Y, and Z, and, and I'm going to be in bed for the next year, uh, trauma response in many ways. Um, yeah. And I remember having the knee pain and pausing. Everyone's like dancing around me and I like sit down and I pause. And I'm like, okay, what if it's just knee pain? And everything else that comes after that is, is taken off the table. Just knee pain. Knee pain I can totally tolerate, mind you. Like <laughs> if it's just a little bit of knee pain, I'm really okay. And I spent the rest of the night dancing and having a great time with all of the energy I needed. And I watched what happened in the moments where I did attach the story and my whole body would just collapse into itself and I would feel incapable of doing anything else the rest of the day. So that is really wonderful. And I imagine that in order to even untangle that, as you say, you need to have some sort of meditation practice under your belt. Um, And what do you suggest to people that have never meditated? Like set the timer for five minutes. And I mean, you make, by the way, guys, Jessica makes incredible suggestions all throughout her book. Pick it up. It's like there's a practice for everything. And if you want to be walked through these, um, these practices, you will be walked through them gently and uh, with handholding quality in the book. But uh, for the people that are listening, if you could just give a little tidbit. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the number one thing that anyone who's starting a meditation practice needs to know is that you do not have to quiet your mind to meditate. I love that. Totally not necessary. And the reason why many people don't meditate, because they sit down, and myself included when I was you know, younger, sit down, you try to shut off your mind, to quiet your mind, as people often you know, attribute to meditation, and it doesn't work. 
because we're human beings with brains that think thoughts and they're supposed to. <laughs> and um, we also, most, most of us live in, you know, a bustling place. You know, most, most of your listeners probably are not, you know, on a ranch in Idaho or up on a mountaintop in, you know, wherever. Um, we're in the world and there's stimuli and the, the mind is going to think thoughts. And so just to immediately just like let go of that that fantasy that you're going to sit down and have a quiet mind because it's not even the point the point in my opinion is to create a new relationship with your mind and so I suggest that people use guided meditations to get started because it's very supportive or go to a class um, so I have a ton of guided meditations on my youtube channel maybe we can add that to the show notes um, but also there there are a bunch of apps now one of which I really love and I'm, I'm on is called Simple Habit. And I'm actually happy to offer your listeners a two-week free code for that, too. Um, oh, great. Yeah. Um, and there's basically a meditation for everything on there. Um, and using the app is helpful because you have the guidance and you also have the daily reminder. And um, on, on Simple Habit, you can look and you can see all the different places in the world people are using the app, <laughs> which is neat. Um, and so I, I think I think using technology to support your um, your meditation practice is a really good thing. Um, and then of course you know you could just sit down and set a timer for five minutes and see what happens. And that would be fine. But I think um, it's very helpful to have some guidance, and you can get that for you know a, a relatively low cost, free on on YouTube. So it's amazing. Uh, yes, we will definitely put your link your YouTube channel below. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you about sex. <laughs> um, what I here's I'm going to quote you okay. in the book. Sex is such a big part of being human, yet it is often ignored in spiritual awakening. To wake up fully, we need to invite awakening into all parts of our lives, including our sex lives. I just love that. It's like. I mean, I, what I love so much is that when I, I set out to heal, and I tell everyone this, especially with an illness as complicated as Lyme disease or any autoimmune, that, that healing fully really does take the mind, body, spirit, um, a physical, emotional, and mental healing. I never added sex to that <laughs> equation. Um, and it is part of being a human being, and I abs I have uh, you know tons of sexual trauma, um, tons of it, and there were there are many ways that may, having a healthier sex life actually makes me a healthier person. Um, so I really I really in, I really enjoyed reading your book from that perspective. That healing your sex life is a spiritual having good sex is a spiritual practice. Um, and maybe you can talk about s some of the ways having sexual trauma and uh, not healing our sex lives can actually impact our physical health. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not a doctor, but um, I have my experience and I have the experience of lots of people I've, I've worked with over the years. And um, I think that you know, a big thing that humans need is connection. And so many of us are disconnected in this really basic primal way. Even if we're having a lot of sex, it's, it's not connected. And by connected, I don't mean with one monogamous partner. 
you can have connected spiritual sex with a stranger in a bathroom, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> I just love you. <laughs> this is why you need to read Jessica's book, because she doesn't leave a single person out or a single experience out of how sex can be spiritual. You, I promise you, it is the most all-inclusive book about sex I have ever read and will ever read. Oh, thank you. I mean, that was a, that was a big goal for me with the book was to make sure it was as inclusive as it possibly could be. Um, and, you know, I'm sure, you know, already there's ways in which I could have made it more inclusive because things are changing every day in the, in, you know, in issues of gender and issues of just everything, you know, I'm like, it's just, there's just so many ways. Like I don't actually talk, I don't think I talk at all about, um, you know, um, issues of disability and sex in this book. And mm. mainly because I have not really, I don't really have experience with that and I can't write about something I don't have experience in, but it's going to come into my next book for sure. Um, and so, you know, there's already things that I'm like, oh, there's other people I want to speak to as well. Um, but to, but to come back to your question, I think, I think this sort of lack of intimacy and connection and disconnection, not only from our partners, but from our own bodies, um, it makes perfect sense to me that that would a lead to physical issues. And then as we were talking about with the ACE survey, um, you know, there's so many women that experience uh, pain during intercourse. I'm one of them. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an epidemic, really. And m the sad thing I found in doing the research is that so many women are not telling their partners mm. that they're experiencing that pain. And you just think about that. You think about this very tender, intimate place in a body and everything that it means, you know? And then think about it hurting, being in pain, you know? And then think about it being a secret. To me, that just, that sounds exactly like sexual trauma. Mm. And so many women, sadly, are, are kind of re-traumatizing the system. Right. In trying to be normal or in trying to not be too much. Oh my God. Yeah. And so I think, I think there's, there's so many, so many ways that sexual trauma can affect not only our sex lives, our lives, our relationships and our health. It's like, it's hard to even open the can of worms. I, but I do think that, um, it's 100% possible to heal. And I think that's the important part. If you have sexual trauma, you know the side effects. You know what you've been dealing with. Um, I, I do talk about sexual trauma in the book, and I do talk about my personal um, experiences with sexual trauma. And, um, you know, it's interesting because it's, it's a spiral. Life is a continual process. And um, I've been doing a lot of podcasts recently, and I've been sharing this story because I feel like it's really important. Um, when I wrote the book, um, I wrote, wrote this chapter that I'm about to refer to of the book, um, I felt differently about a certain topic. And so just a trigger warning for listeners, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna get into detail, but I am gonna talk about sexual assault. Um, I, I, when I was 14, uh, 20 something had sex with me while I was blackout. I was, I was on LSD and I was high and I was drunk. And we ended up. <laughs> yeah, totally. Of course. Just like a 14 year old. Yeah, exa exactly. <laughs> um, and we continued to have sex for a little while after that, for a couple months. Um, well, I, when I wrote the book, I did not think of that as rape. I, I knew it was statutory rape. 
And I knew it wasn't okay. I knew it wasn't technically consensual, but I didn't think of it as rape. And then the Me Too movement happened, and I um, I wrote my and I wrote the story, the same story, but I still didn't call it rape. And then, like a few weeks later, the Kevin Spacey thing came out, and um, and I didn't read a lot about it, but I noticed a little bit of resistance with the first story. I was kind of like, oh, but he was drunk, and I mean. You know, and, and I just, I, it wasn't like I was saying it was okay, but I wasn't totally on board with him being like this perpetrator, pedophile, rapist. Um, and then, of course, more, and then a friend said something. She's like, yeah, she's like, actually, it is a big deal. Actually, it's not okay. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, and there's going to be more coming out. And I was like, oh, and then, and I just stayed open. I'm very, I'm very teachable. You know, I, I don't claim to know anything at all. Um you know, I have opinions and ideas and philosophies, but I don't believe that I have one truth in any realm. Um, so anyway, I when the additional stuff came out, I was drawn to one story, and it was a story of someone he had had a sexual relationship with when this guy was 14. And the guy says, Kevin told me that when I was 12, he had been very drawn to me, but that he, but that I was too young. And, and the guy, and then the guy laughs and he goes, and what 14's not too young. And I was like, oh my God. And it just hit me like in every, in the head, the heart, the gut. That's exactly what this guy said to me. And I remember at 12 loving the attention, loving the way he looked at me. And I remember being 14 and suddenly being old enough. And, you know, the only thing I remember of that night is, you know, asking to use a condom and he didn't. And, um, I now consider that rape and it's really humbling to have written a book um, and at that time not known that. Yeah. And so all of that to say like this is a continuing journey for all of us, even people that are sub like authors or experts or whatever, where everyone is learning and processing and healing. And when you have trauma, you know, it's, it's a process, but you can heal. That's the important thing, I think. Like, so you can, and yeah, maybe there's some physical issues that you're gonna have to live with, but even that, you can heal about heal around how you deal with that, how you think about that. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. I actually had a lot of resistance to the Me Too movement, um, sit for very similar reasons and when uh, a few what you were talking about pain during sex as well, and this all loops in. A few weeks, I guess at this point, a few months ago, I um, I went to the gynecologist to really get a complete uh, workup of this pain that I've been experiencing. They, I mean, a couple of doctors actually looked over me, uh, did, you know, the pelvic exam, uh, a speculum exam, and an ultrasound. I mean, I got the works. <laughs> they spent an hour looking over everything, finding every little thing. Um, and two nurses came back in the room and said, sat down very gently and said, how does your boyfriend treat you? Well, kind of. And I knew I know what they're getting at, of course. So I'm like, my boyfriend is absolutely wonderful. Nothing weird is going on. And they were like, well, the reason we ask is because uh, what we noticed in your exam is that you actually have a ton of sexual trauma. 
And the reason why you're in so much pain is because your muscles are contracting anytime so, so greatly, anytime penetration comes near or is suspected that you, and you've been doing that for so long that that is causing you pain during bowel movements and urination and especially sex. And I just started weeping. I mean, I knew the second she said it, I knew it was real. I know where it comes from. And, um, there are, I know that there are ways to heal. And in a sense, it was freeing. Cause I was like, Oh, okay, we can work with this. I can work with my partner on this. He does know that I'm in pain. He is willing to, to do things that you suggest in your book, like hugging meditations and, um, Actually, yeah, talk to us a bit about some of the things you suggest to people in pain with their partner, healing this stuff with your partner. Yeah, I believe in the book there's a, a, a section about uh, breathing through pain for people that want to work with pain during sex. Um, and I'm not saying that you should or you shouldn't, but for people that choose to, that there's a lot you can do with just the breath. So... Um, if you're having penetrative sex, when you when you get to the point where um, it starts to hurt, to pause, to back off a little bit, and then to start to breathe and relax. So breathe in to the area where the pain is and relax and breathe in and relax and then see what happens. Can, can you um, tolerate a little bit more penetration? If not, you just back off again. If you can, great. And then breathe and relax there and just take it really slow. Um, there's actually, you have a, you have a more ability to relax than you think you do. Um, it's just like the nurses said, it's, it's so trained into the body. And so it's a process and it takes practice and just like a meditation practice. Um, so if that kind of tension during sex is something that you're dealing with, then I would recommend that you do relaxation meditations once a day at least. And I have something in the book I call rest and relax. And it's really just about relaxing the body and then intentionally focusing on those relaxed sensations. And so if you're practicing that once a day for 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes, then when it comes to sex, it will be that much more available to you to work with relaxation during sex. Right. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, you also, t I mean, you talk about so many things, it's impossible to get into all of it, but um, let's talk a little bit about how safe sex and how I think you say safe sex is self-care, self-care, self-love, self-love, self-care too, but yeah, safe sex <laughs> as se safe sex as self-love. Yeah. So what is, I mean, I love the, the way you go into it in your book. It's not just like use a condom. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much more to it. I just want to hit a couple of the points. Um, consent. Uh, we just talked about, um, you know, getting tested before you have sex with your partner, sharing the test results. Um, what else? What are some of the other? Well, I think, you know, so many people, even in this day and age, are so scared to just sit down and have the talk. Yeah. <laughs> just be like, okay, um, uh, this is my sexual history. These are the STIs I've had. These are the STIs I have, um, or maybe none. Um, having that conversation is still so challenging for folks. And it's so interesting to me, I think, because when I was like 15, I was diagnosed with HPV and from the guy who wouldn't use a condom, by the way. Oh, nice. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it was very scary at that time. And, 
I was having a lot of sex. Um, and so at 15, I started having that conversation with every single person. And um, I was very lucky because the strain that I had completely cleared my system. It never showed up again. And I get, you know, I, I get tested regularly um, and it just never showed up again. So I was like one of the lucky ones. It didn't turn into cancer. It didn't turn into warts. It wasn't that just wasn't my situation. But the gift that it gave me was this ability to talk about safe sex, to actually have that conversation. And even now when I have a new partner, um, there's no reason whatsoever that I have to tell them that story. Like, and I know that, (laughs) but I tell them anyway, I say, look, this is part of my sexual history. And, um, because that just feels right to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think, I think that's number one. Like, why are you uncomfortable having that conversation? why would you why would you be okay with sharing saliva and having yourself inside or having someone inside you that you can't have a really simple conversation with and it's because you know it's fear of intimacy and it's so interesting how we push through our fear of intimacy and vulnerability and into sex right (laughs) pseudo intimacy right for me you know sex has often been pseudo intimacy it doesn't have to be not when it's mindful sex but there is a way for it to be pseudo. Yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of sex in my life and a lot of it good, but um, you know, I didn't. I had no idea what I was missing. I had no idea what it could actually could be when you um, actually practice, you know, radical intimacy with another person. And it can be as simple as just being there with that person. Again, it doesn't have to be candlelight and tantric loving. Like it can be, <laughs> it can be anything. It's just, are you really there? Yeah. I love that. And, you know, uh, some of my listeners are definitely people that are on medication and have low libido and are in a lot of pain. I mean, we already discussed pain, but feel really unsexy because they're very sick. Um, And you have this this amazing thing in your book, the the Sex Drive Boost Toolkit. Um, Will you tell us some of the, the sex drive boost tools for people that are feeling pretty low libido? Sure, sure. Well, first of all, I think it's important to just really recognize that there's nothing wrong with you. If you're dealing with chronic pain um, and you don't want to have sex, that seems totally reasonable to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so first to just like let go of this idea that something's wrong or something needs to be fixed. And that's in any realm. That's in any realm. You're, you are perfect as you are, and there's always going to be work to do, you know, but you, but you are good right now. <laughs> you are lovable right now. Um, so if we start from there, then the toolkit is more useful because if we're working, uh, working in this deficit of thinking we're not good enough or we're broken or something, then it's, it's, it sort of doesn't work. Um, so the next thing I'll say is that you sexuality is unique to an individual. Um, and for some of us having sex once a month is, is plenty. And for others having sex twice a day is, is not enough or I don't know. Mm -hmm. So it's like, so you're an individual and you and your partner are going to have to work together to find an amount of sex that is, um, satisfying and good for both of you. Um, just because you have different desire levels doesn't mean one of you is right or one of you is wrong. Um, so then some of the, some of the tools, so so everything is sort of on the basis of your sexuality is a relationship. It's a relationship with yourself and your sexuality and your relationship is a relationship 
you know, that you and your partner have. And just like a friendship um, or a job or a creative pursuit, if you don't put attention and energy into the relationship, it's not going to happen. And so you, ha you need to put energy into your sexuality if you want it to be available for you. And I know how, you know, when you kind of fall off the sexual self-care wagon, um, it can feel like a long way to climb back up and to get back into your sexuality. But it, it can actually be relatively quick to, to kind of turn things back on. Um, one of the things that I recommend for couples or people in relationships is um, to give a little bit of attention to your sexual relationship every day. And it doesn't need to be sex. It can be... Um, a sexy text. It can be. Um, it can. It can be a longer kiss goodbye, or hello. It can be, um, you know, a, a caress of the back instead of a pat on the butt. You know, it can. It can just be these like little things that make a huge difference, right? Um, talking about sex, even if you're not having it. And that's the thing. Most people are not talking about sex. If you start talking about sex, if you start just talking about a sexual fantasy, pretty soon the body starts reacting. And so some of it is just practicing getting comfortable being able to, to verbalize and communicate. Not everybody needs to want to talk dirty. I don't really like, personally like talking dirty. I kind of feel like, you know, I'm an actor, so... Uh, that's it's my job to like put on a show. <laughs> I don't really want to put on a show while I'm having sex. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, get into the habit of talking about sex, um, texting about sex, uh, thinking about sex. Put your attention on it more. And then the I think one of the tips in there is like the sensual life. Like like are you wearing clothing that feels good? I don't even mean sexual. I just mean good. Are you wearing fabrics that your skin likes? That's so great. I love this. And I know that there are going to be people out there that are listening and bumming because they're not having sex right now. So we have to wrap up, unfortunately, but I have a thousand more questions <laughs> I want to ask you. Um, but will you give a word to the people that are not having sex and don't actively have a partner, whether or not that's by choice? And because you talk, I just want to be clear, Jessica talks a lot in her book about people who are both celibate and people who, and m most of your sexual healing and mindful sex starts with the self. It doesn't start with a partner. So it's actually all about masturbation and being with yourself sexually and not even getting off, just being with yourself. So, you know, this is not... <laughs> just for partner sex. That's right. Um, so will you just touch on that and give a little word to the either celibate by choice or not <laughs> folks listening? Yeah. I mean, celibacy isn't really my area of expertise. I, I do just, <laughs> I do. <laughs> you think? <laughs> I do. I do touch on it. Uh, I have had some periods of celibacy that were very helpful, but I will speak to people um, that, that do not have par partners at this time. You can absolutely engage with and develop and blossom in your sexuality without a partner. Um, again, your sexuality is yours. Um, so one of the first exercises I give anyone who's interested in you know, bringing mindfulness into their sex life or improving their sex life or just um, 
you know, exploring more is mindful masturbation. And the idea is that you create a cozy space for yourself, you set a timer for about 15 minutes, and you start to explore your body, not necessarily going right for the genitals, and definitely putting aside things like toys or porn or like your go-to, not because there's anything wrong with any of those, but because I'm interested in helping people to create a new relationship with the body and embodied pleasure. And so you just start to explore, you might touch your face and your neck and your chest and your arms and eventually getting to the genitals and just exploring in ways maybe you never have before and paying attention to what feels good. And when you notice a sensation anywhere in your body that feels good, just paying attention to it, really feeling it, not thinking about it, but actually feeling it, getting into the physical sensations. And that's a great place to start. And then from there, you know, finding some great erotica or checking out some ethical porn or doing some nude modeling. I do nude modeling and I love it. And um, it's a creative thing for me. And it also is a sexual thing for me too. Not, not like I'm having sex with anyone but it's like there's a, a sexuality to it and I really enjoy that so there's so many ways we can explore our sexuality without actually having sex yeah that's amazing thank you and for anyone who doesn't feel well or is sick or in the throes of chronic illness and listening I mean that just sounds like such a an act of self-love to me to get down someplace cozy and be with yourself and touch your body and see how it feels like I hope you guys go do that because that is, to me, that's a healing act on its own. It's giving yourself a hug and then some. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Um, (laughs) So thank you so much. Um, You can follow Jessica on Instagram at Jessica Clark uh, Graham, J-E-S-S-I-C-A-C-L-A-R-K-G-R-A-H-A-M. Like a graham cracker. <laughs> like a graham cracker. I follow her and I love her posts, so I suggest you do. And then if you want to work with Jessica or find out more about what she does, you can go to yourwildawakening.com. Um, and you have so many wonderful services on there and uh, different ways to stay in touch. And then we will also be putting her YouTube channel below and um, any other things that we talked about will be below. Uh, where else can p- people find you? Oh, where can people get your book? Amazon? Oh, yeah. So the book's really available wherever books are sold. It's uh, been published through North Atlantic Books, and it's distributed by Penguin Random House. Probably the easiest place to get it is Amazon. Um, and anybody who uh, gets my book on Amazon, please write a review if you like it, or even if you kind of like it, because reviews really help. Um, but oh, yeah, I'll go write a review. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's actually only like I think it's under $12 on Amazon right now, and it's actually like a $17 book, so Amazon's a good place to get it right now. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, You're amazing. Thank you for having me. You're amazing. (laughs) 